Acts 4. Uh, this is our final week um, on this particular series. Um, it's a beautiful passage, beautiful story. Um, I'm gonna read it, and I'm gonna jump around just a little bit because it's a big, big chapter. We're not gonna read the whole thing. So let's, let's look at this together. Starting in verse one. The priests and the captain of the temple guards and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So remember, um, there's just been this healing of the lame man. So he's like some in his mid-40s probably, and he's been lame his entire life. He has just been healed, and he's like dancing around, he's singing, he's praising God, and because he's making such a scene, a big crowd has gathered. And so Peter has taken the opportunity to actually um, preach to the crowd. So uh, we have Peter's, literally his second sermon, and, and he's repeating a few things, which I love, um, but it's a short sermon, so here, here we go. But they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, verse two. They were greatly disturbed, this is the religious leaders, um, because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, so grabbed them, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men uh, who believed grew to about 5,000. It's actually my first point, and I have to point it out here before we go on, and I'll come back to it. But you, you cannot um, separate Peter and John being thrown into jail and the number of believers growing. And, and so even in Scripture, when they go 5,000 men, um, they're not counting women and children. You're, you're talking 12 to 15,000 believers. So it's literally gone from um, you know, a few um, disciples, 12 disciples to 120 gathered in the upper room. And then when Pentecost happens, remember they spilled out onto the street and Peter preaches his first big sermon and 3,000 people give their life to Christ Jesus, surrender their life to him and they're baptized in the spirit. And so here we are just a few months after Jesus was crucified, probably three months and uh, it's literally grown to some 12 to 15,000 believers. It's mind-boggling to me. Verse five, the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Now, where was Jesus tried? Jerusalem. And look at this, verse six, Annas, the high priest. Now, you'll remember, Annas was literally the one who, who presided over um, the, the trial of Jesus before they handed him over to Pilate and the Romans. So Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. So we have literally the same thing unfolding three months later, the same um, trial, the same building, the same area, the same location, the same city, and it's happening again. Verse seven, they had Peter and John brought before them and they begin to question them. So they're looking at them and they say, by what power um, or by what name do you do these things? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today on an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then you, uh, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus, and then uh, Peter's actually quoting Psalm 118, but it says, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone or the chief cornerstone. And then verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under, given under uh, heaven by which we may be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were ordinary, unschooled men, and they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
But since they could not see, oh, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there. So you literally have Peter and you have um, John and you have the man who's been healed standing there. There was nothing that they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. They had to go into a closed session because the evidence of this guy being healed was so outright. Verse 16, what are we gonna do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So here's a fascinating little kind of caveat, but they literally can't get him for breaking any laws. They haven't done anything but help a lame man. So what do they do? They change the law so that the next time they preach in the name of Jesus, um, they can actually arrest him. Verse 18, then they, that's the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, I love this, love Peter's courage, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Verse 21, after further threats, they let them go, uh, but they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. The man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Now, we go into the believer's prayer in verse 23. I'm not gonna read this whole thing, but I love the way it starts because it literally goes, God of heaven and God of history. So the believers are literally attributing all of history, all of heaven, heaven and earth to him. And probably the thing to note there is if you fear God, if God's in his right place in your life, you will not fear men and women. If God's in his right place in your life, you will not fear the people around you. So they're literally saying God of heaven, God of history. And then I wanna skip down um, to verse, let's see, 29. Now, Lord, so this is the prayer of the believers, the prayer of the people. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Lord Jesus, today as we open your word, would you actually fill this place? Would you shake our um, literal physical bodies and this place and then would you fill us and let us speak your word boldly? In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so I wanna just jump right in. My first point this morning is um, when uh, persecution and difficulty arise, there is vigorous church growth. Like you can't separate this thing. Like every single time there is severe um, persecution, difficulty and challenges um, against the church especially, it just grows, it thrives, it actually booms. So if you step back today and you you survey um, the entire globe, so Christianity at large around the world, and you go, um, what are two of the most hostile nations towards Christians? Probably Iran, probably China. Now, where is the church growing the fastest? America? No. Iran? Yes. China? Yes. When the church enters a time of persecution, when people come against her, when things are um, serious, then all of a sudden the spirit of God sort of moves. I think people probably turn their hearts back towards God and out of that newfound hunger and desire for him, it's like the Holy Spirit breaks out and the church grows. It's, it's like, it's brilliant. So literally, if you look at per capita right now around the world, the church is growing fastest in both Iran and China. 
probably growing slowest in America. And what I'm actually praying is in this time when things are difficult and hard and challenging, that what is happening is people who have known God or have a glimmer of him maybe deep in their heart actually begin to turn back to him and people who don't know him would begin to come to him. I'm praying and believe that in my 39 years that this is probably the greatest opportunity that I've ever seen for the gospel to actually advance. That just means good news, gospel means good news, but to advance in our cities. So opposition um, is, is also probably the proof um, that the Lord Jesus is working in your life. So if everything is easy peasy and nothing's hard and everything's going great, you might wanna go, Lord, am I in the way? Do I need to adjust something? Because when you're walking with God, things will be challenging. The world, flesh, the devil are gonna rise up against you. I love, though, this spontaneous expansion of the church. Literally in three months, it goes from 12 to 120 to 3,000 to 5,000, which really means 12 to 15,000. It's this spontaneous sort of spilling out and growth. That wasn't a church strategy. That wasn't a system by which they got people in and moved them through. That wasn't a way or a style in which they preached. No, no, that was literally the spontaneous movement and expansion and, and, and the, just the rapid fire rolling of the Holy Spirit in their midst that people are literally coming to Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, could we see that again in our day? You know, it's interesting to me too because in the third chapter of Mark, you actually find Jesus performing a miracle and he, he heals a man with, it, it looks like some kind of shriveled hand. And um, he actually has to ask because a group of religious leaders come against him and he has to ask, is it lawful to do good or evil to save life or to kill on, uh, on the Sabbath? And he literally heals this guy's hand and his hand is unfurled and then uh, they begin to persecute Jesus. So literally, when, when you are doing um, good, when God is present, when you are uh, walking with him, expect persecution. I think it also should be said that the entire time Jesus ministered on earth, so some three years, he found opposition against his teaching, against his healing, against the relationships he built. He found opposition even against his physical body. And you know, it's funny because many of us um, tend to think that we're gonna come to Christ and everything's gonna be good and easy. And, and I don't think that's always true. I actually think, um, you know, Christ is raised from the dead. He has a new body, but there's another new body that Christ Jesus has. It's called the body of Christ. So, so think about that a second. If, if literal, God, God incarnate, Jesus' literal body is persecuted while he walks around on earth, and then he's crucified, dead and buried, then he raises from the dead, and then he ascends, and now his body, we become his body on planet earth, those of us who are in Jesus, doesn't it make sense that his new body is going to undergo persecution? Yes. John 16, Jesus actually said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I love this too because literally uh, Peter is brilliant here. They, they, the Sanhedrin and Annas and Caiaphas, the whole guys, they, they come to him and they bring him into trial. And, and Peter is, um, he's just filled with the creative energy and brilliance of the Holy Spirit because he literally says, are you putting me on trial for helping a cripple? Are you putting me on trial literally for helping someone who was hurting? I mean, how, how do you even answer that? He's bold, he's audacious. 
And then he actually says, you might have killed this Jesus, but he raised from the dead. You cannot get rid of him. You know, we've, many of you know, but we've been out with this um, odd little yellow truck that we've got going out into the city, just serving people. And the most common question that we keep getting is, why are you doing this? Like, why would you give away a cup of, of coffee? And I haven't yet perfectly formulated my answer, but what keeps bubbling up inside of me is, Jesus, like he loved me when I was a wreck and he brought me out of that wreck and he set my feet on the rock and he's, and he's, uh, he's worked in me and through me and he's worked in my family and he's done miraculous things in my life and I can't help it but share his love. And if that's a cup of coffee or a cup of cold water or going to help or going to love or sharing Jesus, then so be it. But it's like rising up within us, within me, because this is all about him. So the first thing I wanna point out, and this is, you've already said it, but it's so important, persecution and difficulty against the church will always equal vigorous church growth. Great point. Second point, uh, God desires that no one should perish. Now you go, okay, sure, I know that. Oh, well, maybe, maybe you know that, but let's even look a little deeper here. Um, God so desires that no one should perish that he gives Annas and Caiaphas the two guys that are responsible for the death of Jesus, he gives them another opportunity. Like I truly believe with everything in me in verse five and six that, that the Holy Spirit intended that Peter and John would actually do this miracle of, of, of um, seeing this guy, this lame person healed, and then they would actually preach the name of Jesus to Annas and Caiaphas, the very ones who put Jesus to death. I think God provided an opportunity for um, those two and the entire religious sort of party of the day to actually repent, to turn, and to come to Jesus. That's it's just brilliant to me, the, the extent of God's love. And you have Peter here who literally knows that they have the power to kill him. They just killed his Jesus, right? And yet he's full of boldness, he's full of courage, and he preaches um, in such a way that he's more concerned with their salvation than his own safety. I mean, I love that. Just sort of throws, throws his safety to the side and preaches Jesus, going, I'm gonna live dangerously, I'm gonna walk with him, I'm gonna elevate the name of Jesus. And then one of the things he says in his sermon that I think is fascinating is he, he quotes Psalm 118 and he literally goes, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. And if you know much about that, a stonemason, uh, which Jesus probably was a stonemason, not just a carpenter. If you look at the original um, Hebrew, there's not a lot of trees in Israel, but there's a lot of stones. Um, so it, it, literally a, a stonemason though would go and you start the entire building with a, a cornerstone and then you work from there. So what it's, it's saying here is, is you religious people rejected the stone and, and God has now taken it and he is building the body of Christ off of this stone that you rejected. And, and I think what's fascinating even there is everyone tries to get Jesus to fit into their thing, right? He doesn't fit in. He, he just doesn't fit in. You can't fit Jesus into your uh, religion or your organization or your gathering or, no, no, you actually have to fit into him. There's this whole flip that has to happen and it's why the gospel um, actually is hard because you can't ask Jesus to come fit into your life. No, 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 he actually says, surrender your life to me, take up your cross and he fills you. You fit into his life, his plan. So then one of the most powerful verses, right after this, talking about 
the stone that the builders rejected. And I think the other thing that's probably worth saying here is the people rejected Jesus. They actually had a chance to set Jesus free and they chose to set Barabbas free instead. The people rejected him, not just the high priest, not just the religious leaders, but the people rejected Jesus. So then Peter says, salvation, verse 12, is found in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. I wanna say something that's probably a little hard here. Um, Christianity is the most inclusive um, faith and relationship with God that I've ever seen. It is the most inclusive. It includes everyone. There is no one that is outside the scope of God's love. Take even Annas and Caiaphas who literally killed Jesus. And I believe with everything in me that Peter is there preaching, offering to them, hey, Jesus died and he was resurrected. You saw, and now we've seen this guy that's been healed. This is the name of Jesus that's healed him. Turn. That's the love of God. Christianity is the most inclusive um, relationship. I don't even call it a religion because it's a relationship that I know of, there is no other. It includes everyone. But then it flips and it's exclusive because it literally says salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name given under heaven by which people can be saved. There's no other way. And I'd even actually call you to think about your own life this morning. What, what are you gonna say when you stand before God? And you will, we will all stand before God. Will you call on the name of Buddha or Muhammad? Will you call on the name of your pastor? Will you call on your good works? Will you call on something you've done or money that you gave away? I don't know about you, but I'm gonna call on the name of Jesus, my Jesus. Something that I think is happening in America is it's being revealed that we are in some ways drifting from some of the Judeo-Christian worldview and even roots that we've had. And I think it's also being revealed that we didn't have quite the Judeo-Christian worldview and roots that we thought we did. And what that basically means is that we're drifting sort of from this revelation that each of us is created uniquely by this creator, loved by God, called according to his good purposes. And when you begin to drift from that, then, then life is, um, is worth less. Life is, is not as sacred. And so we get things like George Floyd. We get things where we... Um, sort of cast aside an orphan or a baby or an elderly person or a person struggling with their identity or a foreigner or uh, someone uh, with different you know, moral underpinnings. And so suddenly we're, we're adrift on the sea. And I think there's this great option and opportunity right now for us to actually come back to King Jesus and put him at the very center because when he is at the center and when our lives are surrendered to him, everything orients around that. And then I'd ask another question, just as we're even looking at Peter preaching to this crowd, what is it then that Christianity gives you that no other religion can give you? I think this is worth considering. What is it then that makes Christianity different? Because I've talked to people of many different religions and if you ask them, are you forgiven? The answer is almost always, I hope so. I think so, I'm trying to be, 
But in Jesus, we are forgiven because he paid it all. He desires that no one would perish. That brings me to my third point. God loves to take the ordinary and to use it and mold it to become the extraordinary. You've got two fishermen, Peter and John. I love verse 13 because Literally, it's talking about these religious guys. And these religious guys were the most powerful in all of Israel. They were connected to the Roman Empire. So they were the wealthiest. They were the most educated. They were the most powerful. What they said went. They had the ear of Rome. And they literally, literally says in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled. They're ordinary people. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, Jesus loves to take um, the broken things, the foolish things, the ordinary things, the unschooled things, and use them, transform them for his glory and even for our good. You know, it's interesting to me because this religious group is literally gathering and putting Peter and John on trial, probably 500 yards from where Jesus would have been buried in that garden tomb, literally 500 yards. They could have walked out and checked to see if the body was there. And if the body was there, it would have put all this to bed, wouldn't it? It would have just shut it all down. But they couldn't because Jesus had risen. And not only had he risen, now you got Peter standing there and you got John standing there and standing next to them is this man who had been crippled for 40 years and everybody around had seen him crippled and now they see him walking. So you got the sign of God present, active in their midst. I want to end this morning with the believer's prayer. The very last part, I'm actually going to read it again, verse 29. It says, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal, to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. As I was studying this, uh, this week, I couldn't help but be convicted because literally, what did they ask God for? Two things. They asked God, number one, that they would speak his word with greater boldness, that they would love well, that they would speak well, that they would teach, that they would, that they would share the good news of Christ Jesus more boldly. And then number two, that he would continue to perform signs and wonders through King Jesus. It's so simple. They didn't ask actually for a new church system or a new church strategy or a new idea. They didn't even ask for a church building. They didn't ask for salaries or greater blessing or more money or a new car or a new house. And I'm not saying that by themselves any of those things are wrong. They're not. But look at the purity of heart that these believers walked in where they go, of all the things they could ask God for, they go, God, would you let us speak your word more boldly? And number two, would you continue to show up powerfully in our midst, doing signs and wonders? The believers asked for these things, and then look at verse 31. After they prayed, I love this, I love verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly, like he answers their prayer and the church continues to roll forward. So as we close this morning, Missy and Daniel are gonna come back up and lead us in a closing song. But as we close, I'd like you to join me in those two things that the believers ask for. Can we ask that we as a church community, that we as the church, uh, even at large, would speak the word of God more boldly? And then number two, can we ask that he would show up powerfully?